This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, Welcome to On the Shelf for March 2021. It's tempting to open with some comment on how it's now been an entire year for me of living under the threat of COVID. A year of working from home and having only minimal face-to-face socializing. But honestly, I'm just tired. Not too tired to keep on plugging away at what it takes to help fight transmission, but tired of having our shared experiences all revolve around this ongoing disaster. Have you ever read a novel about the Spanish flu pandemic a century ago? They're out there, but for the most part it's like the world collectively flinched away from it and moved on to the Roaring Twenties. But part of what made those Twenties roar was a manic relief at having survived. Survived World War I, survived the pandemic, survived the historic changes that happened in parallel with them. One of the interesting things about historical fiction is how it can fasten itself to specific events specific stories that can only happen in one particular time and place. Oh, you can have historical fiction with somewhat generic settings. I've read books where it was hard to tell what century the story was set in, the details were so generic. But there are events that nail a story down to a specific time. If you set a story during the Stonewall Riots, there's only one time and place you could be talking about. And there are settings where the omission of key features says a great deal about how we, collectively, have chosen to process and remember history. If you read a Regency romance that never mentions servants, or never mentions where the wealth that supported those balls and gowns came from, the author has failed to grapple with essential truths about their characters. A hundred years from now, if people write novels set in the 20s, and gloss over both the immense disruption this pandemic caused and the societal failures that made it worse, they will not be writing historical fiction so much as fantasy. Will they choose to forget? To omit? To look away? Will someone, someday, write a novel set in 2020 that mysteriously fails to take note of what we're going through? I wonder. The podcast schedule means that last month's episode was recorded too early to be able to announce the lineup for the 2021 fiction series. And presumably, those who were eager to find out what stories we selected have already read about it on the blog. But for completeness' sake, here's what you can expect. The first story of the year, of course, was Diane Morrison's A Soldier in the Army of Love, which we bought last year. So this year's picks include what will be the first story of the 2022 season, due to the same scheduling. Selecting stories is a complex process. Is the story well-written? Is the prose solid and competent and good at communicating the author's ideas? Does the story fit with the theme of the program? You might think that would be a given, but there's a lot of room for interpretation and differences of opinion. Does the story grab me and keep me reading? Does it start and end at the right places? And is the chunk of story the right size for the word count? Does the language of the story sing to me? I'm a sucker for just plain beautiful writing. And by that, I don't necessarily mean pretty writing. 
but the ability to use words not just to explain what's going on, but in the way that an artist uses brush strokes. This aspect can be very much a matter of personal taste, and very often it's the feature that helps me make that difficult choice between two excellent stories. And finally, how does the story fit into the overall program? Do I have a balance of settings and themes? Have I made the series as diverse as possible given the available materials? So, here are the stories that sang to me from this year's crop. Palio by Gwen Katz, the fierce competition of the famous Sienese horse race set in the 17th century. Moon River by Mandy Moncolioth. Two young women joined forces in the aftermath of the Third Anglo-Burmese War in the late 19th century. Abstract by Kat Sinor. Set at the dawn of history, two artists share their visions deep in a torchlit cave. The Adventurous by Catherine Lundoff. The further adventures of the pirate Jacot Delahaye and the courtesan spy Celeste Girard as they hunt down a certain Englishwoman who may be in a similar business. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I have. On the blog, I finished up the last article in the collection Homosexuality in French History and Culture, which was Leslie Choquette's Homosexuals in the City, Representations of Lesbian and Gay Space in 19th Century Paris. It's particularly interesting to see Paris developing as a center of a public and self-conscious queer culture during that era that we associate with sexual repression in the English-speaking world. After that, I went back to my stock of downloaded journal articles, which will probably take up the next several months and be somewhat random in topic. First is Martha Vakinas's They Wonder to Which Sex I Belong, which takes an interesting look at the difference between the history of modern lesbian identity and the history of women loving women. Another article that contrasts historic and modern experiences is Catherine Binhammer's Thinking Gender with Sexuality in 1790s Feminist Thought, which finds some interesting parallels between the sexual insecurities of early proto-feminists and the sex wars of second-wave feminism. I'll finish out the month with Nan Almila's Boyd's very brief essay, The History of the Idea of the Lesbian as a Kind of Person, which also addresses the idea of what it is we study when we study lesbian history. Book shopping for the blog has picked up again since I was looking for an unrelated secondhand book and decided to pick up enough titles to get free shipping. The unrelated book is America's First Lady Boss by Curtis S. Johnson, which is a biography of my great-great-grandmother, Margaret Getchell LaForge. One book I've had my eye on for a while but wanted to find secondhand is Norman W. Jones's Gay and Lesbian Historical Fiction, Sexual Mystery and Post-Secular Narrative. It's an academic study and probably started life off as a thesis or something, so I have no idea how interesting it will be for the layperson, but I'm rather tickled at the idea of queer historical fiction being a topic of study. The second is Anna Clark's the History of Sexuality in Europe, a Sourcebook and Reader, which is a collection of articles on a variety of themes, probably meant for use in a college class. The third title will be a bit of a challenge for me. Marie-Jo Bonnet's Un choix sans évoque, excuse me, Un choix sans équivoque, uh, with a title that translates to An Unequivocal Choice, Historical Research on Romantic Relationships Between Women of 16th to 20th Century. Uh, have I mentioned that I've never actually studied French? But depending on the topic, I can muddle my way through. And this is said to be the definitive work on the history of lesbianism in France. I was reminded of Bonnet's book when doing the background research for last month's essay on 17th century Saloniere and fairy tale author Madame de Murat. 
I was also reminded that I can muddle through French a little when I found the French Wikipedia page on Marat more useful than the English one. And speaking of that essay on Marat, sometimes life hands you convenient coincidences. Right before last week's episode on Madame de Marat came out, I saw an announcement that Marie Ness's new collection of essays on French salon fairy tales and their authors had just been released. Since Marie's essay on Madame de Marat was one of the sources I used, it seemed only right to invite her on the show to plug her book and chat about the queer side of the Contes de Fay. Welcome, Marie, and sorry for mangling the French there. Uh, my own French will be probably very mangled during this. Uh, I learned what little French I did from a British woman in Italy who taught me how to mispronounce everything. So we, <laughs> we will have to be a little cautious with my French. <laughs> so. Yes, I, I, I sometimes only realize that I'm about to delve into a language I have not mastered when I start pronouncing a book title or, or a name. So in your book, you dig rather deeply into how the social mores of 17th century France and the personal lives of the authors come out through fairy tale tropes. How do you think that the very different attitudes towards sexuality in that era are expressed in the stories? So I wanted to answer this, or I should say, um, to start with, to give a little bit of the overall weird background of queerness at Versailles which is that it was illegal, very illegal, but the king's brother was also blatantly participating in it. Yeah. So you see in these fairy tales, a lot of hints, particularly in, for example, the uh, long version of Beauty and the Beast, not the condensed version that we're familiar with, but the original long version that is a full length novella. It's very tedious, it's very boring. It has a number of women and men caressing each other at interesting intervals. <laughs> could, of course, assume that they're all just doing this in a friendly way. After a while, it becomes increasingly difficult to assume that they're just friends. You know, the first time this is friends, second time this is feeling a little less friendship. Uh, so, and this is what you typically see in these fairy tales is many hints of particularly royals who do end up in very straight heterosexual relationships at the end of the story. But as they progress through the story, they are very often doing queer things or things that we would read as queer and which I personally think these French salons, fairy tale authors, they were intelligent people. They knew what they were doing. Many of them had seen the brother of the king with the men he was very strongly associated with. And many of them also participated in their own or at least were accused of participating in same-sex relationships. And it's very hard for me at least to read these um, many of these stories and think, oh, no, they were all completely straight at all times <laughs> and never had any other thoughts. Um, they, they were all, you know, very, very straight people. It, that was true for some of them, but I really have a hard time reading all of them as purely straight. And I think they used fairy tales in many ways to express that in something that was more acceptable because it's fiction. Yes. And a few of them it's for children. That belief that fairy tales are for children was part of the French salon fairy tale tradition, even as they were all entertaining themselves at the salons with tales. And this, I did not get into this in my book as much as I wanted to, but um, some of the uh, tales that we have that have not been translated into English are very, very adult in the sense of being extremely masochistic. Uh, they involve bondage. They involve all kinds of fun stuff. They involve all kinds of alternative 
I don't want to use sexualities here because that's not really what's going on, but there's a lot of alternative approaches to gender relationships that happen in many of the stories that have not been translated yet into English. <laughs> and that adds another layer. Uh, and of course, you also have a lot of cross-dressing people in the fairy tales and it's acceptable. It's a fairy tale. That didn't mm -hmm. happen here. Even as this happens in stories that very specifically mention real life places. Uh -huh. Which is, you know, you have that um, the long version of Beauty and the Beast, which I just mentioned, has a moment where they stop and discuss Turkish palace revolutions. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Beauty is right there. She's watching. So it's very much of, okay, is this a fairy tale? Yes. This is mentioning a lot of fairy lands, but are these rooted in real life? Fairy tale writers knew what they were doing. Uh-huh. So other than Madame de Marat, who our listeners have heard a great deal about uh, in the previous show, who are some other striking personalities among the authors of fairy tales? So I love them all. And I feel that even the ones that sound boring are fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I really, really want to know what was going on with in Marie uh, Jean uh, Le I told you my French was terrible. She was the niece of Charles Perrault. She seems to have led a really quiet life. But then you find out about all this money that she's getting from aristocrats. Hmm. And you start wondering, wow, this is a lot of very wealthy people giving her money for reasons that are hard to understand. I want to know what was going on there. I don't know. <laughs> I really want to know. Um, but, you know, she, on the surface, she had a kind of dull life. So the more interesting ones that had the really scandalous lives that were fun. The author of The White Cat, uh, Madame Duvalnoy, uh, she's great. She was very probably a spy for different people at different times of the world. She slept with a number of people. She hated her husband. She went in and out of France. Uh, she wrote all kinds of fabulously incorrect histories. <laughs> called them histories. She came back in. She said, hello, I am an intellectual. It was great. She set up her own salon. Uh, she kept fighting with her husband she, because she unfortunately couldn't divorce him. And by unfortunately, I mean, that was his point of view. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so she was awesome. Uh, definitely. She wrote a lot of huge number of short stories. Uh, the English translations are sometimes a little iffy. So you do have to be careful. Um, uh, try for the Jack Zipes one. He has not translated all of them. Uh, but the ones you will find on the internet, unfortunately, very often soften the original French. Uh -huh. It's not necessarily what we really want out of our stories. She also has a tendency to go on at length, which has made her perhaps a little less popular than she could be. <laughs> and then the other one that I really love is uh, Charlotte Rose de la Force, because she was imprisoned for writing poetry. Yeah. And I'm like, now the reason for the poetry, it wasn't just that she was writing poetry, but it was considered to be impious. So Louis XIV said, nope, this is very anti-religious, very anti-impious, so we're going to toss you into jail. What's great about this is from that experience, she wrote Rapunzel, mm. or rather the original of Rapunzel that when the Germans, Grimm brothers, collected it, they did collect it from a German version that really resembles the French version quite closely. They realized it and made changes in later editions so that the Rapunzel that we know of, that we know today would sound more German and less French mm -hmm. because that was their, their plan. But she had very high connections to royalty because she worked for Louis XIV's second secret wife. So she had seen it. 
She saw the secret marriages. Uh-huh. <laughs> she had seen all the affairs of the aristocrats. She had, when it was involved in scheming, we, you know, uh, her correspondence was apparently mostly destroyed. So we don't have all the details, but we can tell from the edges that she saw things and she fascinates me. Uh-huh. Uh, absolutely. And it's fascinating to find out that the Rapunzel story that we're aware of actually had its roots in real life. That is probably the most realistic fairy tale that we have because it was based more or less on a true story. Oh. Her own imprisonment. So. Well, thank you. So the book Resistance and Transformation on Fairy Tales by Mari Ness is available from Aqueduct Press, either directly or through your favorite book dealer. And I'll have links to the book and to Mari's social media in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. This was really fun. I enjoy doing the in-depth biographical essays like the one on Marat. But sometimes you want to remind people of the richness of history out there with more of a brief skim through history. This month's essay was inspired by a discussion online about yet another historical movie with sapphic themes that seems to have gone out of its way to pick a tragic story. One big problem with the love affair filmmakers have with tragic stories is that they leave the audience with a mistaken impression that there were no happy endings in history for women who loved women. So for this month's essay, I'm doing a shopping list of actual historic women who lived interesting lives, loved other women, and did not have those relationships end in tragedy and misery. Hollywood, take note. Time for the new book announcements. Newly published sapphic historicals are unevenly distributed across the calendar at the moment. When I ran my searches for this month, I found only one title published in March, but a good half-dozen February books that hadn't turned up last month. And we'll start by casting back to January. S.W. Anderson has a self-published series set in the Wild West with a fierce gun-toting loner heroine. A Call to Justice is the third book in the series. I'm not sure if the series as a whole has a title. The protagonist, Sarah Sawyer, has settled down at last, but a thirst for justice when tensions rise between settlers and the native population leads her to pin on a badge. The first February book is one I postponed from last month's show because it's an Audible original and didn't have a pre-order link until it came out. The Wife in the Attic by Rose Lerner is a gothic story inspired by Jane Eyre in which the new governess is confused and intrigued by the mysterious woman confined in her employer's house. Next month, we'll have Rose on the show to talk about her book. If you love audiobooks, this story was designed for the audio format, though it will be available in print at a later date. It's hard to evaluate how a memoir-style novel fits into historical fiction when it spans a long era culminating in the present. Sally Bell Rose's Fishwives, published by Bywater Books, sits in the Southern fiction tradition, following a lifelong couple from their first meeting in the 50s through a lifetime of love, conflict, and growth. Another book set in the 50s is G.B. Baldessari's self-published Flying High, which looks to be riffing off the once popular genre of flight attendant romance, but this time matching British chief purser Charlotte Thompson with Californian Claire Davis, a meeting that perhaps wasn't meant to have happened. For a short story treat, try Laura Kinsey's self-published Victorian set Bump in the Night, in which a desperate wallflower has a spooky encounter with an unexpected intruder. The cover copy suggests a supernatural encounter, but is it truly magic or only illusion? We go back to a Wild West setting for Ruth Hansen's The Railwalkers from JMS Books. 
In the lawless aftermath of the American Civil War, rebellious heiress Violet Donovan finds escape from the expectations closing in on her when a false murder charge puts her in the hands of a diverse group of vigilantes for justice called the Railwalkers. I'm not quite sure how to describe this next book, The Ledge Light, New London, by Diana Perkins from Sheetucket Hollow Press. It appears to be set in an unspecified time, maybe in the 19th century, in Long Island Sound, when a farm girl seeks her fate in gender disguise, and that fate takes her to a lonely lighthouse. The cover copy isn't very clear about what the sapphic content might be, so it might be a gamble. But I'll note that the real ledge light was said to be haunted, so perhaps this story explains that. The last February book is a French title, Eleutheria Chronique des Amazons by Helena Manenti from Homo Romance Editions, which has been the source of several French-language titles we've mentioned before. Set in classical Athens, the young aristocratic Nyssa has a chance to leave the golden cage of her marriage for the chance to escape to a feminist utopia when she encounters an enslaved woman who would turn her insistence upside down. And there's one lonely March release in my list at the moment, a supernatural adventure slipping between times and worlds. Girls in Black, book two in the Ranger Periversum series by Vesna Kurilich from Striga. The aftermath of World War II is complicated enough, but Lena needs to figure out how to keep her parallel world doppelganger secret from her landlady and her employer. And then there's the problem of how long she can stay in this world at all. And me, what am I reading? I'm still struggling with my fiction reading habits, and I'm making a big push to get caught up on my reviews, which I think will help. But one book that easily broke through my reading block is Aliet de Baudard's brand new Vietnamese-inspired historic fantasy, Fireheart Tiger. This is a bright gem of a novella set in a Vietnam-inspired fantastic past in which an undervalued princess meets a former lover in very awkward circumstances. And, but let's just move on to hear what the author has to say about it. Aliet de Baudard writes speculative fiction that draws on her Vietnamese heritage and blends queer characters into both fantasy and space opera. I've been longing for her to write something that intersected the themes of this podcast solidly enough to ask her on the show. And with Fireheart Tiger, I finally got my wish. Welcome, Aliet. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So could you give our listeners a brief synopsis of Fireheart Tiger? Yes, uh, so Fireheart Tiger is a romantic fantasy that's set uh, in the secondary world, but that's very directly inspired by pre-colonial Vietnam. Uh, it's set in the fictitious country of uh, Binh Hai, uh, which is currently under siege both by its neighbors and by a colonizer country. And it follows Than, who's a royal prince, an imperial princess, sorry, and who got sent to the colonizing country as a hostage and came back uh, as kind of damaged goods because she didn't really achieve much, obviously, because she was never going to achieve much. The only thing she brought back is an intense and torrid love affair with the princess of the colonizing country, which becomes a problem when she gets put in charge of negotiations with said colonizing country. And the head of the delegation is said former princess, who's like, I would really, really like to reconnect in a very significant way. Um, and she finds herself caught between issues of love, loyalty to country, loyalty to family, and re-questioning where she thought her life was headed. Yeah, I can see that could be complicated. Relationships. <laughs> <laughs> you have to work at them, apparently. 
So what was the inspiration for this particular story? Uh, so it's been a mixture of things. So um, the fire itself is there's a history of, I mean, the one I can think of is Denmark, but you know, there's a history of royal palaces burning down. Denmark, I have to say, was pretty spectacular because <laughs> the palace burned three times, I think, in a two centuries interval. I wanted to write a story that was focused on pre-colonial Vietnam because to me it's a fascinating time period. It's also a very frustrating time period because when I read the history, obviously, you know, that's the problem with reading history is you know how it's going to end. And you kind of know that all those characters who are bickering with each other about what it means. So you have French um, in, uh, interference in Vietnamese uh, politics, uh, that you have more and more missionaries coming, more and more Americans making inroads is not a good thing. And that anybody who actually thinks that they can throw in their lot temporarily with the French is sadly mistaken as to their intentions, right? So to me, it's a period of great uh, uncertainty and great change. And I guess I wanted, you know, I kind of wanted to rewrite history in a different manner and think on how it might all have panned out a bit differently and under what terms. Um, at heart though, it's a very personal story about relationships, you know, both familial and romantic, about history, uh, magic. And it's also a story that goes in pretty dark places. You know, it. I mean, I should put up from the trigger warnings for abuse and an attempted rape um, late in the book, which is implied, but not, you know, still there. So I guess, yeah, I kind of threw that together. And the miracle is that it remained novel at length rather than <laughs> become a whole novel. Yeah, I can see that's a lot going on. I mean, your, your works are full of queer characters and it feels like most of your books carry through these themes of colonization and apocalypse. And I don't mean this to be a, a silly question because I think I know the answer, but what do these themes mean for you? I mean, so you've got your fairy tale sapphic fantasy in the Vanisher's Palace, which is after the departure of an incredibly destructive alien occupation. You've got the Dominion of the Fallen series that deals with the very literal fallout of a magical war between fallen angels and their allies. So these themes of colonization and apocalypse are really through lines in much of your work. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess where I come from is being a child of a particular war, right? Um, my family fled the Vietnamese-American War when they were by and large, well, I mean, it depends on which generation, but let's say the generation just above me was teenagers when it happened, right? It's a very peculiar feeling to grow as part of a diaspora that's not you know, it's not an economic one. It's also a very particular feeling. You don't always have a choice about migrating for economic reasons, right? But war makes it a little different in terms of urgency. Yes. Um, and no return. There's what I was raised with was stories of a world that had passed uh, because it had been destroyed, right? What I've been raised with is uh, the dialect of Vietnamese that in some cases is very much no longer extent, right? There's words that I know that are not in the dictionary. They refer to customs that are not that followed anymore either, right? So it, it kind of feels in many ways like, I mean, first off, a terrible devastation and also an accelerator of history. 
but it also feels very much like a child. I guess that my main feeling was growing up in the rooms on something I didn't really know, right? Because, I mean, what I got was mostly stories filtered through the lenses of my family and not all the stories, right? The, oh, when the kid enters the room, we're going to shut up about the things that we're actually <laughs> talking about because those are not subjects for a kid, right? So it's only as an adult that I find out things that, you know, I I went to my grandmother to learn some Vietnamese because I felt like I needed to speak the language a little in order to, rec- I mean, I speak a little, but I wanted to become more fluent in order to reconnect. Uh, and then she drops like, bombshells after bombshell in the middle of a conversation and she's like yes we hid in the marshes after they bombed like our new years and I was like what I'm sorry <laughs> what and when we came back they thought I was dead and I was like yep can see that yeah. can see that <laughs> and I think you know although I did not know that growing up as a child it's still there right no matter how well adults try to hide it so I feel that this whole apocalypse is because in many ways the war was that to my family. And I'm not per se concerned with the actual apocalypse happening, right? You'll notice that, for instance, there, is, there are no stories set during the Great Houses War in Dominion of the Fallen. I haven't written a whole lot of war stories in the Suya universe either, right? Because most of what I'm concerned with is what do you do afterwards, right? I guess it's the concern of, I mean, my concern, but also the concern of, you know, my generation, which is the one immediately after that, which is, okay, where do we go from there, right? And different point of views, points of view, depending on whether you stayed or left, right? And you deal with the, the complications of a multicultural background. So you've got the Vietnamese family heritage, you are French by nationality, and you're writing in English. And I, I've heard you talk on Twitter a lot about sort of translation challenges where you're trying to represent specific cultural concepts in a language that, that doesn't have a, a useful shorthand for those concepts. But what are some of the, the joys of writing from such a multi-layered cultural background? I guess, I mean, well, I mean, first off, it's, it's hard not to do otherwise, right? And I feel like, you know, um, I remember having this conversation with a friend when I was just I mean not when I was just starting up but about like three or four years into my writing career and I mean depending how you count writing and career <laughs> per se but uh, let's not get there but anyway so um we were having a conversation about writing our own cultures and I said but you you know um, and we were both scared of doing it and I was like okay but if we don't do it who is going to do it right uh, actually what I said was if you don't do it who's going to do it right and then I hung up and I was like hang on mm-hmm. <laughs> is she the only one it applies to? No, she's not the only one it applies to. Right. Need to sit down and do a bit of soul searching here. I'll be back in a week or so. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's that to me, which is, you know, it's impossible f- for me to write being informed by something else, right? And the other thing is, I guess, I'm always very aware of how things are relatives, right? Things, things are, um, it's very easy for me to just go like, well, this thing that you think is a bedrock and absolutely indispensable and absolutely universal actually is not at all, right? Because especially, you know, coming from a Vietnamese and French background is that they're kind of further away, I would say, than, you know, I don't know, the French and the Spanish because they were neighbors per se, right? So it's easier for me to go like, okay, for instance, the assumption that a woman is going to take her uh, husband's last name upon marrying. Yeah, no. Why? What makes it, you know? So I guess to some extent it makes 
world building a little easier for me because I don't have those knee-jerk assumptions and I tend to question everything, which is not terrific in everyday life, but it's great for world building though. And the other thing is, you know, being actively aware of language and how you use language, right? And which language you, you use in which circumstances as well, right? So I think that's something I'm very interested in. Um, also interested in, you know, what I think of as liminal spaces, right? People who, hey, wonder how that happened. But anyway, I don't <laughs> belong to one culture or the other. And what it means to navigate that space uh, and what it means to, I guess, code switch. I don't know if that's really the right term technically, but a kind of like switching, you know, attitudes, mindsets, and that sort of thing as you navigate, which is also something I'm terribly interested in and something that a lot of my characters tend to have as well, right? For instance, Than is also navigating between what she knows of the colonizing culture through being there from ages 12 to 16 or 18. I can't actually remember my own timeline. <laughs> um, I'm gonna say 18 and, and her own country. And, you know, there's this sort of disconnect between coming back to a country where she only spent half her childhood, but it's, it's her homeland. So kind of alienation from her own culture, mm-hmm. which I think also comes from what I navigate, right? Because my culture very much rubs against into defense French culture, right? It's very, I mean, you know, again, things that they take for granted, I don't really, right? So there's that that I have to navigate in everyday life. And so my characters tend to do that as well. And it makes it easier for me to understand what that would mean. Uh So I'm gonna preface this next question with an apology for making reference to Asian quote unquote fantasy as if the entire continent had, you know, some universal uh, factor. But uh, when I've been compiling the the new book listings for my podcast, I have been seeing a lot of sapphic historic fiction, historic fantasy with various Asian inspired settings or, or historical Asian settings. And a lot of it has been own voices or at least written by people whose cultural roots are in the cultures they're writing about. So I, I sort of hate to call it a trend, but it, it is something that has jumped out at me as maybe, maybe more like a pattern in the clouds. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I'm very happy about it personally. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that makes my, okay, I'm gonna take both that book and that book and that book. Oh yeah, yeah, a lot of reading sorted for next year. Yeah, I mean, well, I think that you see there's been, okay, I hesitate to call it a trend as well, right? But yeah. there, um, there's been a persistent buildup in lifting up and publishing more own voices, right? I certainly know that when I started publishing about 10 years ago, there's um, things that I'm publishing today that I could not have sold. And I know this because I know that we had the chat with my agent who was like, okay, I love you. I know you want to write this. I know it means a lot to you. I don't think I can sell it though. So we need to have a chat about what you think I can actually sell and what is the intersection between your interests and what I can sell. So I think that that's, at least that barrier to entry has been reducing, right? It comes with a lot of other issues. Like, you know, I'm not saying that we've solved racism in publishing. No. We have not, no. uh, but you know, notably, um, sustainability of careers is the first one that comes to mind right because and there I am going to call it a trend which is that 
publishers very often feel to me like they're jumping on the bandwagon of oh the next shiny thing and that's I guess part of how publishing works but I'm a little concerned that this is also going to apply to authors of color more than it does to white authors and I guess time will tell there right yeah that, that is um, the problem with trends they come in and then they go out yeah yeah exactly and I'm a little you know that's where I get a little comfortable because you know <clears throat> we're not a trend right we're kind of hoping to stay <laughs> I mean we're there to stay actually uh but um we would like to not to have to fight so much <laughs> yes to stay and and the same thing has been happening I think you know for on voice I was talking mostly about people of color but you have the same trend the same well general uh, general direction going for on voices queer narratives right so I think to some extent it's kind of get the pond big enough and then you're gonna have to have the you're gonna have the venn diagram intersection of these two things being published is what i think is happening i think uh, and also i think you know to some extent it's being particularly hyper visible because especially sapphic has not exactly there's been a dearth of highly visible i'm not saying there weren't there right but they tended to get less visibility than other stuff uh, or to be self-published, or to be published by smaller imprints, or, you know, the list is endless, but it's not a question of existence. It's really a question of, like, how, you know, well, big five, right, publishing, and then marketing budget in big five. Um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the um, Ladies' Guide to Celestial Mechanics was the first sapphic romance to be published by big five, I think. Or um, I have heard like that. that. I, I think the author said something about that. So it. Yeah, I, I have not. I mean, you know, I'm quoting, so I don't know. But, you know, there's certainly not been like 25,000 before that, right? So, no. and I think you also have that in fantasy NSF. So they're also, I guess, particularly visible because they're being pushed and because they weren't there before. So there's a real appetite for them, which is yeah. good, right? So, I mean, again, I'm not complaining, but. <laughs> But time will maybe tell. Yeah, time will tell. And maybe there's this big invisible factor that I'm missing. Oh, and sorry. And you also have, um, there's a lot of editors also that are starting to be hired, you know, in marginalized, from marginalized demographics. Which, I mean, hired, that are start, yeah, I mean, that are starting to make the mark rather than uh -huh. being hired. They've been there for a while again, but. Uh -huh. So do you have any current projects you're working on that our listeners might be particularly interested that you're allowed to talk about? Well, I'm working on a um, Space Pirates project that's directly informed by the South China Sea Pirates. Uh, so the South China Sea Pirates were in the um, ooh, tail end of the seventh, uh, 18th century, tail end of the 18th century in the, in the boundary zone between China and Vietnam. Uh, Shisi is the, sorry, my pronunciation, however, is terrible, uh, is the main, the main known one, the pirate queen. There have been a number of them spread over different periods. And what I'm doing is uh, mostly coming at it from, you know, the Vietnamese history angle, which is that the, the Taishan dynasty actually finances itself through piracy, partly. Um, <laughs> and so I'm kind of telling a science fiction version of this, which also involves like, you know, sapphic shenanigans because one has to put these in, um, <laughs> continuing with themes. <clears throat> and so, 
that's the main one I'm actually allowed to talk about. There's another one of interest that I'm actually not allowed to talk about. So we'll wait until I actually have permission. Well, we'll wait eagerly to hear about that one. Uh, and that's about all I've got going at the moment. Uh-huh. It's been, you know, 2020 gesturing, cursing, that yes. sort of thing. Yes, that we're being productive at all is a miracle. So I, I like to ask guests to talk about something they've read or watched recently that they think the listeners might be interested in. Would you have anything to share? If I'm allowed to get like, you know, recent from like some time ago. So I read Kate Elliott's Unconquerable Sun, which is a gender-bent um, Alexander the Great in space with Alexander being son who's in a relationship with another woman. So, you know, and it's also, I mean, I don't know all the history, but there's a lot of historical parallels that Alice and I were talking about. And so it's certainly, you know, if, if you're interested in history, you should check that out. It's a very chunky book. So you've also got plenty to read, but it's like one of the best books I read in 2020. Ooh, this is the year that felt like forever. And the other one that I can think of that I really, really like is uh, Ngivo's uh, When the Tiger Came Down the Mountain, which is, so it's partly about history, but it's also about the love between a scholar and a tiger who are both women and how that plays out uh, for the tigers and for the humans. It's kind of short. So, you know, that's at the other end of the spectrum of like, if you have time to read or if you have less time to read, um, <laughs> I found it quite delightful, uh, both because of the themes being explored, because of the way that it nails oral history. And obviously, you know, I'm culturally biased there because it draws on like Vietnamese lore. So it sounds very much like, you know, the, the queer version of what something my grandmother might have told me, which is very high praise so far as I'm concerned. Uh-huh. Well, that's lovely. So if people wanted to follow you online, where should they look? I have a website, um, which is aliedebuddha.com, which is mostly for, you know, the official uh, news and stuff, the newsletter as well. <clears throat> I'm on Twitter um, as Elliot DB, which is mostly where a lot of the linguistics, um, pen and inks, tearing my hair out over unexpected developments, and all that stuff happens. Also, book promotion, but you know, <laughs> that's not the great majority of the timeline. And if you just want to hear about the, the new releases and stuff, I really recommend the newsletter, which is really the best way to get that in your inbox and I mean I am solo parenting <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's not like I have time to spam people with newsletters so <laughs> I really send it when I have news <laughs> so that's where I am mostly and if you're more interested in the recipe side of thing I have a patreon which has a tire which mostly features I mean, there's a bunch of tires, depending on whether you're interested in writing the recipes of both, uh, but that has the goods on how to make pancakes, my experiments in making tarts and pastries and all that sort of thing. Well, I will include links to all of those in the show notes. And thank you so much for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 